Welcome to the Midlife Men podcast with me, Philip Briscoe. This episode is the second part of my conversation with Paul Bayliss, talking about his experience of depression in the workplace while working on a high-pressure major transformation project at a local authority. He started to flag that things weren't right. For example, he didn't feel he was as sharp as he used to be at work and, and he had problems sleeping. Eventually, his doctor signed him off with depression, which was a massive shock and took Paul by surprise. Not least because he couldn't understand initially how a successful professional with a high-powered job could get depression. What would people think and did that mean the end of his career? He then found out that it's not as uncommon as he thought and due to a combination of toxic work cultures and general ignorance around the symptoms of depression, Many more people were struggling, not just him. In part two, this episode, Paul talks more about his recovery, but also about what you can do in his situation, how to spot the red flags, how to ask for help, and how important it is to distinguish between the work you and investing in yourself with interests outside of work, which is really critical for a healthy work-life balance. How important do you think it is then to separate you, Paul, me, as individuals, from your job because a lot of people it's one and the same thing you know should we in your experience in your opinion should we you know make sure we have you know two different you know sides to us if you like personally i think it's phenomenally important to have your own identity as a person to know who you are to develop your own interests outside of work i think where work becomes the point of validation and the point of your identification as a person, when it doesn't work, everything comes tumbling down. And therefore, having some form of interest outside of your work environment, be it physical, it could be things like the gym, it could be nature. My friend John, he is what we call a rambler. And I've gone with him on some of these walks. And it's interesting because the group of people that do rambling are nothing like the people that I would normally hang out with. I have a great time with them. You know, it could be the arts or music. It could be working with a charity. What I'm trying to say is if you can find an avenue where you're doing something other than benefiting yourself, that's a really good thing to do. And especially if you're feeling low, rather than trying to fix yourself, do something kind and nice to somebody else just because. There is a story I heard. I don't know how true it is, but there's a story I heard about a guy who went to Cambodia. I think his name is Johan Hari. I can't, I can't remember exactly. Anyway. Basically, uh, there was a Cambodian farmer working in the rice field. There was a landmine, blew his leg off, and they replaced it with a prosthetic limb. And the guy went back to the rice field, and being in the rice field, it was very painful, and the guy eventually became depressed. And this particular individual, Westerner, went across to Cambodia, and they were talking about pharmaceuticals for depression and, and so on. And they said, well... We don't use pharmaceuticals. We have our own antidepressants. You know, we have our own. And they said, oh, what's that? So we bought him a cow. And he was like, huh? What do you mean you bought him a cow? And they explained that this man who had his leg blown off, 
was going to the Riceville. It was getting painful. It was a reminder of what happened to him. Became very depressed and weepy and crying and just basically giving up on life. So they went and they spoke to him. And they asked him what was wrong. And they spent time with him. And they realized that the environment wasn't right for him. So they said, okay, we're going to get you a cow. And what you could do is then become a farmer on land. So this person then went and became a farmer on land. And his depression went away because he was no longer faced with the environment, the toxic environment that created the situation he was in. And it's amazing because quite often we talk about depression, we go straight to pharmaceuticals. And actually the reality is if we think about, I think they said there are nine principal causes or traits around depression, only two of them are genetic or biological. Everything else is external or environmental, whether it's trauma or it's toxicity, but only two are actually biological or genetic. So if we can change our environment, if we can engage in something positive, those things are conducive in helping us in improving our well-being. So I would say, you know, in terms of the recovery process, it may well, for everybody's different. I'm, like I said, I'm not a professional, but when you start to do for others without expectation, it's amazing what that does to you as a person. Going back to your recovery process and, you know, the, the, the treatments, lifestyle changes that, you know, that you implemented, you know, perhaps you could talk about those and, and, and how long did that process take? Is it ongoing? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's more than what I would call ongoing. There's, there's a point of which acceptance is really important. Right. So I don't wear a t-shirt or a badge that says, look, I've had depression. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not that type of acceptance, but there's something about just saying to yourself, you know what? I put myself or I found myself in a work environment. This created an unusual impact on who I am and my body responded in a certain way. I'm no longer in that environment and there are certain things I can do to make sure that I manage my well-being. So for me, I did therapy. So, you know, spoke to a therapist, started to talk about some of those issues, and mainly to really talk about acceptance of the fact that I did have this impact. I made lifestyle changes. You know, I used to eat a lot of crap. I don't now. Junk food. I still engage every so often, you know. You know, I will... You know, I will still go and have a bit of junk food. I mean, it's hard not to. But I'm much more aware about what I eat, how I look after myself. Definitely sleep is important to me. Exercise is important to me. Social time is important to me. And they're the sort of things I try to incorporate into my life. I have also learned how to take time off work without guilt. Holidays are there for a reason. We talk about resilient and being resilient in the workplace. Resilience is not about being at the peak of your output and maintaining it. Resilience is about knowing when to ebb and flow, when to pause and pull back a bit so you can then do work at that peak again. I've, I love music. So 
you know, if I get an opportunity, I'll go out and listen to live bands or the theatre. So I engage in creative. For me, it's creative arts. I love doing DIY. I'm good at some, terrible at others, you know. And I've learned to be more compassionate with me, kinder to myself. And I think that's one of the things which I would encourage anybody who's going through stress, anxiety, or depression, be nice to yourself. You know, just try, just, you know, easier said than done, but it's just the little things that you can do and engage in some positive self-care. Positive self-care could be literally switching off all negative media. Turn the telly on. It's just such a bombardment of negativity. Switch it off. You know, manage your boundaries. If there are people around you, they're quite toxic or, you know, every time you have a conversation with something negative, you know, say to them, look, not for me today. You know, oh, can we change the topic? You know, some positive self-care. If it means that you're struggling to get out of bed and, you know, and have a shower, get up and brush your teeth or wash your face. Do something that will help you build on looking after yourself and continue to practice positive self-care because treat you like you would treat somebody else who needed help. You've talked about, you know, some of the support you got from, from friends. You know, in what ways did that support make a difference to you in your, in your recovery process? Oh, it was, it was amazing. But again, I had to educate some of my friends because, you know, I did have a couple of friends who said, come on, you know, you're, they see, you know, especially if you're quite a strong personality, they see you as a strong, resilient person. And it's like, pull yourself together. Come on, just shake yourself and get out of it. And there was a clip from the comedian Ruby Wax. I'm sure it's on YouTube where she spoke about, and I bought her book. She spoke about when she went into the depression and it's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious how she presents it, but there's no hiding from the real serious message that she's sharing and uh, that she shared. And I think about one of the people that I think about a lot when it comes to this is Robin Williams, the comedian. And how you can go from being this individual who is so bright and effervescent and brings so much joy to people, and yet you're carrying so much pain. And that kind of leads me to, again, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this is I still remain shocked by a statistic which says the highest cause of death for men 50 and under is suicide. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Suicide. That is absolutely nuts. We need to talk a lot more about the stress and the anxiety and the pressure that we as men face. It's just not good enough with stats like that, that we're not having more of these conversations and normalizing 
the need to have these conversations. And we've done, you know, we've done an episode talking about how to empower men when it comes to suicide prevention, because so much of it is preventable. Well, I hope people will seek out that episode. And, you know, please see, you know, if you're listening to this and you're struggling, find that episode. I'm sure Philip can direct you to it and listen to it. It's so important. So, Paul, going back to, to, to your experience of depression, you know, in the workplace, what was it like realising that your colleagues struggled, you know, with similar issues? And, and how did you, how did that make you feel? Oh, it was like an unbelievable weight off my shoulders. And I think when you go through something like this, or you experience it indirectly, you suddenly start to see the world through a truer lens. So I suddenly start to see people under stress, impacted. It, it kind of make, made me a lot more understanding, a lot more gentler in terms of how I present myself, a lot more considered uh, in my role, so in my functional role when it comes to change, transformation, and that type of work. Uh, I'm really mindful of the impact of decisions. I think it's it's really hard. Um, there's a, a stat from the Natural Health Interview Survey which says 50% of employees have cried at work. That's men and women. That's crazy. <laughs> 50% of employees have cried at work. Mental health and well-being issues, we talk about it more, I think, from what I've seen in terms of evidence, there are some organizations that are brilliant at it. I was talking to a recruitment consultancy who, who I work with occasionally, and I was telling him about this particular podcast. And he said, Oh, we've got great, we've got a great system in place. Our senior leadership team really supports mental well-being. They actually give you money each month for mental well-being, which you can use for gym membership or some sort of craft or whatever you want to use it for. And they're proactive in checking on their employees. He said, you know, I feel really loved and looked after in my workplace. Went, wow, that's unbelievable. He said, yeah, I haven't seen it anywhere else, he said. So there are some people who get it and they see the financial benefit of it because I can probably guess that organization doesn't have the churn rate doesn't have the employee disruptions, doesn't have the toxic culture that you would have when you don't put those things in place. I felt quite naive that I was the only person suffering, you know, because it is so widespread. And it prompted me to start advocating for cultural change. And it's made me, it's made it a key part of what I do professionally. So yes, while I'll be looking at efficiency and productivity changes and looking at how you improve organizational effectiveness, I will do that anyway in terms of my work. I'm always looking at how can we work better together, especially from a diversity aspect as well. So what early warning signs should people, you know, watch out for in themselves or, or with team members, you know, talking about being in, in the workplace? You know, I, I think you can, some, a lot of it's gradual, but there's definitely a before and after. 
and the, the classic ones have got to be changes in your sleep pattern. You know, if you have erratic sleep patterns, just have a think about why that's happening. Excessive fatigue, you, you know, you're constantly tired. You know, appetite changes. So when we start looking at addictive type behaviors, so either, you know, you lose interest in food and you're not eating, or you do the opposite. You start eating everything and anything. You know, things like difficulty in concentrating and making decisions. If it's becoming increasingly harder for you to pinpoint and make a decision and stick by it, start questioning yourself. Just, you know, you don't have to become too analytical about it, but just reflect. Is the environment I'm in positive or negative? Have I been in it for a long time? How long is too long? You know, do I need to take a break? You know, if you find yourself that your motivation is low and your energy is low, you know, if you start to feel overwhelmed by tasks which previously were manageable, for me, you know, it was walking into a room, sitting there, listening to everybody, walking out and being able to recall. Suddenly, walking into a room, taking notes, coming out, haven't got a clue. You know, that's a massive difference. You know, your work performance, if that starts to decline, I don't really drink. I'm not, I don't drink alcohol or anything like that. But if you find that you start drinking more and you start doing, or you isolate, you pull away from your colleagues, they're all good indicators, I would say. And I would say, don't ignore them. Don't ignore the red flags. Find somebody you can talk to and just share that and just get a sense check. So how should you, you know, on a kind of daily basis, how should you, you know, take care of yourself, you know, to manage stress and, you know, to boost your, your mental well-being? So for me, one of the top ones has to be sleep. Make sure sleep is a priority for you. They say on average we should, we should be getting seven to eight hours sleep per night. I know it varies. But, you know, if you're getting like three hours or four hours sleep, you know, that's not good. That's not healthy. So sleep should be your diet, you know, try to have a, a, a balanced diet. And that's not just what you eat. It's also when you eat as well. Make time for hobby. Have an interest. You know, it doesn't matter what the interest is, you know, but have something that you can take time out for and enjoy. I've just, I meditate. I've been meditating for years and I've just recently taken up doodling. So actually drawing but it's drawing in a meditative way, so really detailed drawings. And I find that when I sit down to do it, everything zones out. You know, I don't think about anything else other than what I'm doing with that piece of paper. So, you know, find things like that. I think there are other things where if your situation is more significant, you know, seek some professional help. It might be a friend initially, it might actually be a uh, therapy, you know, seek some help. But one of the things which I think is really good, and I don't know the science of how it works, is to do something altruistic. Go and help somebody else. Go and volunteer. It might sound a bit strange, but when you engage in helping somebody else and you see them get the benefit, there's something about doing that that feeds into who you are as a person uh, in a positive way. So I would say definitely engage in things 
which will make you feel better, or positively be supportive of others in a controlled way or measured way. So what should organisations be doing then to address things like anxiety and depression, you know, in the workplace? I think the first thing is I would say to any any leadership team, any senior leadership team, if you're in management, you're listening to this. If you're a director, exec director, you're listening to this. Anybody involved in leadership team, be really honest with yourself. If you do have something in place, be really honest and say, is this just lip service? Are we ticking boxes by doing this? Or is there evidence that we're making a difference? That's the first thing. The second thing is, if you're not doing it for the being empathetic with your employees, do it for the commercial reasons. A lot of organizations will have high churn rates, staff coming in, coming out, especially when you think about different generations entering the workforce and the different ways that we work, very transient type of workforce that we seem to be having. So if you don't create a cultural environment that is positive for your employees, you're going to end up with people coming in and out or not performing. There is a direct cost, not indirect, there's a direct cost to churn. There's a direct cost to having to recruit somebody, the cost of recruiting them, onboarding them, engaging them, and then they leave before you recoup the benefit of employing them. It costs a lot less to do something about the culture. It does, it costs a lot less to do something about the environment. So if you have any policies or procedures in place, do a sense check. Is this effective or are we ticking a box? Easy ways to check that, ask your employees. You know, easy way to check it. Do it anonymously, by the way. Don't sit in front of them, ask them. You know, do it anonymously. But I would say create a culture and environment where people feel that they are looked after. And there are really small things you can do. Well-being days. Now it sounds a little bit soft and fluffy. But at the end of the day, if your employees are happy, they will give you more and it will save you. That would be my, my, my thoughts on that. If you're listening to this and, you know, you, you see someone you work with, you know, team member struggling, what should you do? What advice would you give, you know, for them to, for, for, for that person to kind of offer, offer help to someone they see who they think is struggling? I would say the first thing is remember stress, anxiety and depression is not contagious, not directly. You know, just because I walk past you or brush you or touch you. I'm not suddenly going to become ill. It's not that type of, of, of illness or challenge. However, staying in that environment is contagious. So the first thing I would say is be compassionate. Just imagine somebody having a broken leg or a broken arm or a physical ailment that you can see and just think how sympathetic you would be to them. The second thing I would say is to have the attitude of not being judgmental. You know, you might deal with things slightly differently. You might be a little bit more resilient, but you're not them. You know, so be a little bit more compassionate. Try and be a bit more understanding and provide a lending ear. 
there is a balance. Sometimes the need to somebody is way beyond your capacity to give. Recognize your boundaries, recognize your limitations as well. But hopefully as an organization, you'll have systems in place like EAPs, so employee assistance programs and resources. You know, you might have counseling resources corporately that you can encourage individuals to take access of. And I know organizations that they have these services, but their staff don't know and they're not taking advantage of them. So if you see somebody struggling and you're aware of it, direct them to where the resources are. And if it's beyond your ability to support with the person's knowledge, raise it to somebody who can help. Okay. That's what I would suggest. And, you know, if you're, if you're that individual who's, who's struggling, in what circumstances should you, you know, you seek professional help? I would say anyone who is exhibiting suicidal tendencies, it's a no brainer. You refer them to somebody to get help because you just don't know. You just don't know. There's a really brilliant YouTube video. I think it's YouTube by Norwich Football Club that's been doing the rounds. And I saw it and I said, Oh my God, I was so shocked by, it. and I'm sensitive to this. And it showed two supporters in the Norwich colors. And one's always looking a bit miserable and the other one's always up and cheering and he's shouting and, you know, I've forgotten what they, the can, I think they're called canaries. Come on, you canaries. If you're Norwich and it's not canaries, I do apologize. But the, this person's shouting and screaming and the other person's looking really miserable. And I immediately, because it's about depression and anxiety, I thought, oh, this is the press guy. And it goes through, they've gone through a number of matches and then eventually, it comes to the end, and you see the one that's looking, always looking a bit dour and miserable, turns up, there's an empty seat, and the one that's always jumping and screaming and showing lots of enthusiasm is no longer there. And the crux of the story is that person's committed suicide. And, you know, it's not always obvious what someone's state of mind is. So if you get an indication somebody says it, you know, it's not a joke, refer them. And the other thing I would say, if you see self-harm or people start doing things which are really out of character, get help. You know, in your the best will in the world, you may not be able to help them. But we do have in our environment, mental health professionals, therapists, counselors, psychiatrists, we do have resources within our organizations and there are externally organizations like the samaritans and mind and various crisis lines that if you are worried about somebody you can go to them we are not lacking resources what we lack are people to do something do something we'll put the link to that norwich football club video we'll put that in the the links to the the episode as well so, Paul, just to wrap up then, you know, in summary, what, what advice would you give to somebody listening to this who's at work feeling that they are struggling with perhaps, perhaps they're calling it burnout or anxiety or depression or they, they're relating to, to, to all the things that you've been talking about? You know, what's, what's your parting advice for them? 
my parting advice is what I would now, or wish somebody would tell my future, my previous self, and what my friend John told me. You're not alone. You're not that special. <laughs> you really not. You know, there are lots of people out there. The stats are out there that at some point in time, most of us will go through a depressive episode. The difference is a lot of people are able to bounce back from it. So all depression is, is stress prolonged. It's not all it is, but in essence, it's prolonged stress or prolonged anxiety to the point that you can't bounce back. You're not alone. The people around you will at some point through their life go through some form of stress, anxiety, and depression. It is just part of who we are. So don't be embarrassed about it. Yes, be sensitive about who you share that with because you don't want to share it with the wrong person and they respond in the wrong way. But find somebody you can trust and tell them because you will find by sharing it, it will help you to overcome some of the challenges that you're feeling. And also, it'll allow you to, to let go of some of the stigma that you may be feeling, which will be contributing to your situation. I will really strongly encourage practice some form of well-being. Prioritize that. Do something for yourself. If you sense what's happening, seek help. Do it as early as possible. Reach out to professionals. Reach out to somebody. If you're a manager or somebody who is a influencer in an organization, break the stigma. Have the conversations in your organization. You know, just make it normal to sometimes not be normal. It's okay. And, and it's interesting. There's a really interesting phrase that John said to me. I was talking to him about this podcast. And he said, you know, it's okay not to be okay. You know, it's okay not to be okay. It, it's so powerful. So when you ask somebody, you know, if another, I was to say to you, hi, Philip, how are you doing? Are you okay? And you say to me, yeah, Paul, give a pause. And then ask the person again, are you really okay? See what they say. That's it for me. Great. Brilliant advice. Thank you for listening to this episode of Midlife Men. If you're affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, then the advice is really to speak to your doctor in the first instance. Paul referenced a very powerful suicide awareness video entitled You Are Not Alone, produced by Norwich City Football Club which can be found on their website, and I'll add a link in the episode notes. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like us to cover in the podcast, or if you have a story you'd like to share, then please contact me either on Twitter, at MidlifeMen, or email me at midlifemen01 at gmail.com. Join me next time when we talk to other midlife men about their stories, and maybe you'll find that they resonate with you. Thank you.